0: So Father, thank you for Qwen. thank you for, um, for the word that you've given to him, and I pray that he would be able to communicate it um, in a way that we can uh, understand and really take to heart. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that we would be able to hear you and apply your word accordingly. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kel. Good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be here uh, with you this evening. I thought uh, while I was watching the video announcements that some of you might be wondering what happened to Skulk. And uh, Skulk is on outreach in Namibia at the moment, doing the Lord's work, and so he cannot be here doing announcements tonight, but uh, we're so thankful to Sonica and Jason, who did it via video, just in case you were wondering. Skulk is still around, being involved with the volunteers. We are in a season where we are really focusing on the Lord as a church. Over this term, we're going to be looking at what we call the up, in, and out where we're going to start by really just solidifying how we see the Lord, and particularly His kingdom. And last week we talked about this extraordinary king, and tonight I want to focus on the extraordinary kingdom. But the king and his kingdom are obviously very connected. And to understand this kingdom, one of the questions that I thought that we should explore this evening is, how do we get into this kingdom? How do we uh, become a part of this kingdom? And I thought to spend some time on one of the parables that Jesus taught, and we're going to spend most of the evening there, and that is um, in Luke 15. So if you've got a Bible, could you turn to Luke 15? You're going to need it the whole evening, so it's a good reference point. There's not going to be any slides, so I will read some of those scriptures, but it's really helpful when we are looking at this parable, if you can, on your phone, or if you have a Bible. I know most people bring a Bible to church. All right, so this is obviously one of the most famous of Jesus' parables, and it's a famous story. It's found in the book of Luke, but it's for centuries been known as the story of the prodigal son. Now, we're going to start in Luke 15, so it's important to have some context, but most of you will have heard the story before or have read about it, and you would have heard it called the the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And it's obviously the story about a a son who asks his dad for his inheritance, and um, he goes off and he squanders it, he loses it all, and then he comes back and his father very graciously forgives him. And and we've been taught that this is a parable about um, us as a lost son, and obviously a loving God who lavishly forgives us. And it's partly true. But as you read the uh, the entire parable, which we will do tonight, there's actually a little bit more to the story. This is actually a parable about two sons. There's actually a younger son and an elder son, or we sometimes refer to as the elder brother. And Jesus, when he told this parable, he actually wanted us to compare and contrast these two sons. And if we don't do that, we miss the radical message that Jesus shows us. It's meant to actually upset our very paradigm on how we relate to God. And uh, why we are looking at it is because this, I believe, is one of the parables that really sums up the heart of the kingdom. If we're going to talk about the nature of the king and his kingdom, it's very important that we understand this parable in particular. A few years ago, I was um, introduced to a... Commentary on this particular parable, and it was written by Timothy Keller, and he wrote an excellent book commentary. You can read it in about an hour. It's not very long, and it goes through Luke 15, and he actually titled it uh, The Prodigal God, and what he highlighted is that this is really a parable about God. And when I read this commentary for the first time, it really changed how I thought about this parable so many years ago. And I've studied it so many times before, it's really a life message for me. So I just wanted to give some credit to Timothy Keller because over time, his words have become my words. That's how deeply impactful this has been to my walk with the Lord. And I remember studying this in depth for the first time and coming to to the end of the parable and thinking, I'm not so sure if I'm a Christian. It's, I don't know if anyone's had that experience when walking with the Lord for a while, and then you, you have this, um, this experience. Some people call it a a second, a second um, um, rebirth, or being born again, again, <laughs> where you're journeying with the Lord for a while, and then the Lord gives you this revelation, or you run into something, and then you look back and you go, what have I been doing with my life? Even after I've met the Lord, I thought I got it up until now, but now I get it. And we're going to have many of these experiences in in our walk with the Lord. This was a a big one for me, where I journeyed with the Lord, and I thought everything up until that point, how I thought about how we're supposed to relate to God turned on its head. And this was the purpose of the parable. So it was the first time I actually understood it. When Jesus told it originally, it was meant to kind of give the listeners a bit of a kick in the gut. They thought they understood it, and he said, no, 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 you don't actually understand. And so he told them this parable, and and from that point on, it completely changed the way people thought about how we should relate to God. And so this is why it's such an exciting parable. It's quite incredible. So hold on to your uh, seats, because this is um, one of the great parables of Jesus. Now, a very important thing to understand about parables is they really only have one point. When Jesus told his parables, we can learn a lot from it, which we will do tonight, but he had... One thing in mind that he was trying to achieve as he gave that parable, and you want to kind of take a step back and try and think like the original audience. When Jesus told the story for the first time, you want to be in as much of their headspace as you can be. Because what he was trying to do was to shift a certain way of thinking. And so he would tell the story, and then there would be a bit of a cliffhanger at the end, or a bit of a twist. Anyone seen the movie Sixth Sense? uh, The greatest twist of all time. Spoiler alert, he's dead. I know. Okay. So a lot of the parables, we already kind of know the spoiler, but you know, these movies, you know, and that, that really was one of the big twist movies where you watch a movie and the whole way through, you think something's going to happen. And then something else happens and you go, whoa, that's amazing. And then you watch it again. It's not as nice. Okay. But um, these parables are a little bit like this. So we become very familiar with the parables. But really to understand it, we need to try and forget everything we know about the parable so that we can hear it as if we're hearing it for the first time. So can we do that tonight? Can we pretend like we've never actually read this parable before? And imagine that you're listening to Jesus tonight, and he's telling you this parable. And he's got an agenda, and he wants you to understand something. And let's go on a journey and hear what he wanted to say. And so the context is in the very first verse of Luke. Luke 15, verse 1 to 3. The parable's parables a little bit later on, but let's read this because this sets the scene. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? This is a mark, a distinctive mark of Jesus' ministry. It's so difficult to add the S's on Jesus. Uh, One of the distinctive marks of the Lord's ministry was that the tax collectors and the sinners were attracted to it. When I hear this, I am so deeply concerned for our churches today, where you wonder, where are all the tax collectors and the sinners? Are they hiding? Hello? Any tax collectors and sinners here tonight? Because they were very attracted to Jesus. Jesus. Everywhere he went, it was one of the distinctives. They would follow him around. And the tax collectors were, of course, the outcasts of society. They were the ones that no one liked. We still don't like tax collectors, but then it was pretty bad because they were collecting on behalf of the Roman governments. The tax collectors and the sinners, these were the social outcasts, the political outcasts, the economic outcasts. These were the people that we would look down on today. I can name a couple of examples. I wonder if you can think of someone that you look down on today, don't look around, just think, anyone that you go, if they walked into church, you would, you, you would try not to look funny, but you would look funny, you would kind of like, you'd be kind of concerned, kind of like, put your handbag a little bit closer, maybe text the pastor and just say, you know, nine o'clock, just check it out, As the offering bag went out, you would just double check the door just to check that no one, you know, took it. Those sort of people, these would be these sort of people. It would be the person that you, you know, you're in such a good space, but you walk into church and they walk in and now you're in not such a good space. You were going to worship the Lord tonight until this person came, okay? These are the people that we hate. These are the people that we despise. For some reason, when Jesus was on earth, his ministry, one of the distinctives was these people would follow him around. And this, of course, upset another group of people, and these were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In 15 verse 2, it says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Crime of all crimes. Birds of a feather flock together. That's kind of what they're saying, isn't it? Like, you know someone by who they hang out with, and Jesus is hanging out with the worst of the worst. And Jesus hears them muttering now the context here is there are two very distinct groups they are the tax collectors and the sinners and they are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the teachers of the law are muttering because Jesus is welcoming the sinners and so Jesus turns to them and he tells a couple of parables and so the whole of Luke 15 there are actually three parables that he tells which is his response to the muttering that is going on. Does that make sense? So that's our context. So we're going to look at the one parable. There's two before it. We're going to go back to them at the end, but we're going to fast forward to Luke 15 verse 11, where the famous parable of the lost son is told. Although now we know it's not just about one son, it's about two sons. So Jesus has just told two other parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And now he tells the parable of the lost son. This is a third impactful story. This is his response to the Pharisees. In verse 11, it says, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So what we have here is a picture, and this is told in the ancient Near East, and it's a Very um, patriarchal society where the man of the household is the one who holds the wealth. He holds the land. He holds the estate. And in that society, most of the wealth went to the eldest son or the eldest brother for some reasons which we'll look at. But if you were part of the family and you were a man, you got an inheritance. And so what we have here is the scene of the younger brother. There's two brothers, but the younger one approaches his father And he says, Father, I would like my inheritance now. Now, if you were listening as an audience uh, to this parable uh, uh, when it was originally told, you would have heard those words spoken, but you would have understood something different. You see, because to ask for your inheritance then was in effect like saying to your dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. The younger son approaches the dad and says, dad, I'm done with you. Can you just give me your inheritance now? I can't wait for you to die. I'd rather you were dead now. Pay up. Some of the biggest fights in families is over inheritance, isn't it? (laughs) Fighting over it. But I mean, what an awful situation when you start fighting before the parent is even dead. And yeah, the younger brother comes to his dad. Remember, this is a high-authority com- uh, culture. You don't speak to your dad like this. So we know something about this younger brother. He's a bit rebellious. In fact, throughout the world, isn't it that the younger one is always a little bit more rebellious in any case? <laughs> uh, sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. You know, the elder brother has to carry all the responsibility. They get experimented on by the parents you know, so they need to conform. But very often in families, the younger brother just floats around, rebels, gets away with anything. Might not have been in your family, but in this family, like many, this seems to be the case. This was the problem child, the rebellious one, causing nonsense. And this has caused a clash between him and his father. The younger brother wants his own way. And so there's such a breakdown in relationship. He wants his own way so much that it leads to him approaching his own father and saying, dad, I wish you were dead. This is... uh, Now, if they pretend that you are the first century audience, you would go, No! (laughs) And as Jewish a voice as you can say, because these were all Jews. I'm not very good at accents. If anyone wants to come and do one, you are welcome. Okay. And so, um, the father divided the property between them. He gave the son his share of the inheritance. It tells us something about the father, which of course represents God in this parable. The father who should have been affronted and offended divides his inheritance. He gives the son what he wants. In verse 13, it says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. What a beautiful word, squander. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and you began to be in need. Often as we go out and rebel, everything seems well until the money runs out. And then we have to pay the rent. And then we cannot, uh, once we're done squandering, there's no more left to squander, and life hits us in the face. And this is what happened to this younger brother. Not everyone who goes off in rebellion meets this fate, but this particular younger brother did. He lost everything. He made a huge mistake, ran out of money, and so in verse fifteen is he went out, it says he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Jews and pigs. <laughs> they don't like them. In fact, it's seen as an unhealthy animal. And so, yeah, this son who had an early inheritance has really what you could say hit rock bottom. So desperate that he's willing to go and feed pigs, but it gets worse. He's so hungry in verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So to such an extent, this poor Jewish boy who would have always turned his nose at pigs, this is an unclean animal, is now longing to eat the food of pigs. At this point, first century Jewish audience goes, no. This is a scene playing over in his head. For those of us who have been younger brothers and hit rock bottom, it's when you start hustling to make a plan. You've run out of money, you've run out of options, so you start trying to make a plan. And in that dire state where he's eating the food of pigs, or not actually because no one would even give him the food of pigs, he remembers back to the good old days when he was with his father before the breakdown of relationship, and he remembers, in my father's house, there is an abundance of food. There is a roof over my head. And although I've, because of my actions, I've lost the status of sonship, because of my rebellion, because I'm so far off from him, maybe my father would be willing to hire me back as a servant. I left the house as a son, but perhaps he would consider me as a servant. I can work my way back, maybe pay back the money that I've squandered. These are the thoughts in his head, and he must know his father's character, maybe that his father would think this is perhaps a good idea or would go for it, because he gets up and he goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What is alarming in this text is not the fact that he kissed him. It's quite normal in the Middle East. What they would have gone, oh no, is when it says the father ran. Because you see, in the ancient Near East, East, men don't run. It's undignified for a father to run with his robes would be unthinkable. If people were to see that in the streets, they would think that is shameful. A father doesn't run to his sons. This is not a normal scene, and so that would have been very shocking to the audience. What? This father, who has been so wronged, runs towards his son, and he kisses him. And, uh, Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, in the son's paradigm, he needs to earn sonship. Because he's done something so wrong, he's no longer worthy. He thinks he's no longer worthy. And he is, in fact, reciting the very speech that he rehearsed. Except the father cuts him off. In verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. What a beautiful picture of our God. A loving father who cuts his son off midway in the speech and says, No, you think it's a time for fasting and i think it's a time for feasting i don't want to hear it i'm just happy that you're home you see this is a god who initiates something he's not willing to wait the moment he sees his son who was lost he runs after him he runs towards him and his son who in his mind only wanted to be a slave or a servant is given more than he could ever possibly imagine And you know, in this culture, it was very rare to eat meat. It was quite expensive. And so for a normal family, you wouldn't eat meat for just anything. It was only for special occasions. And so to slaughter the fattened calf, this wasn't a duck, okay? This was a calf, a big calf. To to slaughter the fattened calf, the father is saying, this is the best day of my life. The father is so uninterested In where the son has been, he is much more interested in the fact that the son has come home. It is the deepest desire of our father's heart that we would come home, that he would undignifiedly run through the streets. No matter what anyone thinks, unashamedly, he would run. He wants to run and kiss you if you would just return home. And um, there's a sense in which we're all younger brothers, isn't it? To some level. Part of the gospel message is that we have all been a little bit rebellious and wanted our own way, but the Lord, our loving Father, has lavishly um, displayed His love, that as we come to Him, as we desire to, to return to Him, He is waiting with arms wide open. In fact, He's running towards us, and He wants to be with us. This is very good news. If you were one of the tax collectors or the sinners in the audience, maybe... This is the point where you would start to cry as you realize the love of God for you. Maybe not an experience that you would normally have with religious teachers. So you're sitting there and you're hearing about the love of God. But there's some other things that come out here. You see, there's a problem with the younger brother in his mindset. When he comes back to God, he doesn't want to be a son. He wants to be a slave. You see, because the younger brother thinks that the love of God has something to do with us. That somehow God's feeling towards us can be earned. And so in his paradigm, he has done so much bad that he's not worthy to be a son. And so the thing that keeps him from his father, the thing that stops him from coming into the feast initially, is because in his mindset, he thinks that he can make right what he has done wrong. And that is what is keeping him from God. You see, he... He's so concerned about the father's things. When he first went to his father and he said, Father, I wish you were dead. He was giving a very clear message. Is that, Father, I care about your things, but I don't care about you. One of the worst messages that a father can hear. So, a bit of a hit to, to the Lord, I think. Yet, uh, the thing that set him free was when he forgot about the father's things. Even the things that he had spent... When he let that go and he was willing to just come to the Father. So the Father has many things that he wants to give to us, but he also wants to give himself to us. And for the younger brother, his love for the Father's things kept him from being with the Father. And then the Father um, has this feast and uh, the end of Act 1 ends in this incredible celebration. Now this is where most people know the parable. And it is, of course, a wonderful message, and it is a joyful thing, but it's probably, in a sense, missing the point. Because remember, Jesus only had one point, point. and unfortunately, this wasn't the point. It's a wonderful truth that the Lord loves us and will welcome us back. It reflects the character of God, but it's not the reason Jesus told the parable. This is the end of Act 1 in the parable. There's a second act. And at the end of Act 1, there is a character that is conspicuously missing. It is the elder brother. The elder brother hasn't heard about his younger brother's return. And so, if we carry on, let's enter into Act 2. This is in verse 25. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. I've heard it said that, you see, dancing is in the Bible, for those that thought it was wrong. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, verse 26. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. The servant says to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, we've looked at younger brothers, and some of you might identify With the younger brother mindset but of course we're meant to compare and contrast between the younger brother and the older brother and the first thing you notice about the older brother is that when he hears that the younger brother has returned he becomes angry elder brothers when they don't get their way become very angry anyone feeling angry tonight maybe you're an older brother okay So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, this is where they would go, oh, no. Again, the father has run. Now the father is having the party of his life. This is the best day of his life. He's killed the fattened calf, and the father has to leave the feast and go out to his other son. What is wrong with these two children? And he went out and he pleaded with him to come into the feast. You see, the father wants the younger brother and the elder brother to come into the feast, but listen to the elder brother's response. This is the heart of an older brother. He answered his father, "Look." Can I pause there for a moment? In ancient Near East culture, you don't say, "Look" to your father. You address them with respect. And so just by saying that is a shock. All respect and reverence for the father has gone out of the window. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you remember now he's no longer my brother, this son of yours. He has a contempt for this boy who has squandered his inheritance This son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You killed the fattened calf for him. This is the heart of the elder brother. You see, the elder brother is very, very upset. And what we begin to see is actually a similarity between the elder brother and the younger brother. You see, the elder brother points towards his work. Where the younger brother, when he talks to the father, is deeply concerned with everything that he has done, done wrong, the elder brother is equally concerned with everything that he has done right. And so where the younger brother's wrong deeds are keeping him from coming into the feast, it's the right deeds of the elder brother that's keeping him from coming in. At this point, we realize something that would have shocked the first century hearers. Both the younger brother and the older brother are equally lost. Oy vey. <laughs> Oh my word, I cannot believe it. The younger, the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. This is heresy. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the heart of the father. He's trying to correct the elder brother. The elder brother is so upset. The, the father comes out and he invites him into the feast, but he won't go in. He's standing there and he won't go in. Why won't he go in? Because I have done so much and he has done so little. And you're slaughtering, and you're slaughtering the fattened calf for him. There's not a chance I'm going to that party. Party pooper. He stands outside the feast while the father pleads with him. And the story comes to an abrupt end. At this moment, um, you can imagine there would be some silence and some more murmuring amongst the crowd of this first century listeners. Because remember the context. As the Pharisees were murmuring about the sinners and the tax collectors, Jesus tells these parables. and, And at that moment would have been the moment when the penny dropped that this story is not about the younger brother. It's about the older brother. And, and one of the shocking things here is that in this story, the younger brother comes into the feast, but the elder brother is left outside. Not because the father doesn't want him in, but because he chooses to stay outside. And this would have turned radically on its head everything that people thought about God up until that point. How can the man, the sinful disobedient man who has squandered his wealth with prostitutes, end up in the feast, while the religious man who never did anything wrong stay outside the feast. This is the conundrum that Jesus puts before them. Remember, he did nothing wrong. He was, in a sense, without sin, yet he wasn't with the father. You see, the younger brother and the older brother are far more alike than it first appears. Where the younger brother wants the father, he doesn't want the father, he wants the father's thing, Things the elder brother suffers from the same problem. He too doesn't want the father. He just wants the father's things, and so they both, in the same spiritual condition, they both equally lost. It's just that the younger brother knows that he's lost. The elder brother has no clue. The elder brother is furious, and you know he's particularly furious about the cost. If you read, he points towards the wealth that was squandered in verse 30, and the fattened calf that was killed. He's so worried about how much was spent on this vile, vile child. The elder brother cares about the father's things, but not about the father's heart. And so at the end of the second act, you have two sons, one good, one bad, but they both want the father's things, but not the father. They both have a a paradigm. They both have a mindset that they are using to try and live by and get towards God. The one gets his way. The younger brother gets his way by being very, very bad. He takes it from the father. He rebels. And uh, the older brother gets his way by staying and obeying, by trying to earn it. You see, while the younger brother, it's very clear what he's doing is wrong, Jesus is saying what the elder brother is doing is equally wrong. He's trying to earn his father's love, he's trying to twist his father's arms. There was a famous missionary who wrote in one of their journals as they were reflecting on this when they realized their own underbrotherness. They'd been serving in the missionary field for 40 years when they were struck by an affliction, a disease that seemed to come out of nowhere. And at that moment, they felt very, very angry at God. See, elder brothers become very angry with the father when things don't go their way. And while she searched her heart, she'd been faithfully serving the Lord through all these years. I'm not going to say who the missionary's name was. she she's uh, been serving the Lord through all these years. She realized why I'm so upset with God is I don't deserve this. I have been serving you for 40 years. And now you hit me with this. Sounds exactly like the elder brothers. See, elder brothers, they struggle when things go wrong because it feels like God is not rewarding them for what they've been doing. And so, elder brothers, you'll find, become very cynical and very bitter and very upset because you know things go wrong in life. But when things are going right, the elder brother is not free either because they have this burden on their back to obey and to prove, to stay in the Father's house, to look after the Father's things. And this exact behavior, this paradigm, equally keeps them from God. You see, what Jesus is saying in this parable is that there are two kinds of lostness. You can escape God as much through morality and religion as you can through immorality and irreligion. In your heart of hearts, if you think God owes you, then Jesus is your model He's maybe your example. He's maybe even your boss, but he's not your savior. Many, many people in the church today are just as lost as the younger brothers because they think like elder brothers. And Jesus is saying that they too are just as lost. And their goodness is the thing that is keeping them from the feast. Throughout history, these two very broad pathways to God have been put up And uh, for some of us here, you might have been in both. If we think about the younger brother, who of course is represented by the tax collectors and the sinners, one of the ways to talk about this particular way of doing life is something called self-discovery. Many people that grow up in Christian homes and uh, feel stifled, perhaps go off to university, have their ideas challenged, move into this mindset, and it's a journey of self-discovery autonomy. And what they begin to believe is that life is all about discovering yourself, about having your own way. Of course, this will not lead you to God. It is a false way of living. But when you're living this way, and people that are living according to self-discovery, one of the distinctives, it's the same as the other way, but when you're living in the self-discovery path, you believe everyone else needs to live that way. You see, younger brothers are just as judgmental of elder brothers as elder brothers are of younger brothers. The younger brothers think that the elder brothers are stiff, boring, bigoted, Uh, goody two shoes. You don't know what life's about, you're just scared. Take some risks, discover yourself, find your true you. Be disappointed. And sometimes that's what happens, you go off, people become these younger brothers, they go on this journey of self-discovery, it doesn't turn out to be that great, and it's disappointing, so they swing. And the other place, and this is where the older brothers sit, is they go on a different journey, and that is called moral conformity. If I can't control my life through self-discovery, I'm going to control it through moral conformity. Maybe if I keep the right rules, if I'm good enough, if I'm conservative enough, if I obey the rules enough, then I will be in control. And moral conformity, oh, they like to look down on those on the paths of self-discovery. And uh, when you're in this place, you think this is the only way to go. I speak to a lot of people that are on this journey, and I can pick it up immediately when I hear how they talk about people on the other side. Oh, they're just so worldly. (laughs) They don't know what life's really about, you know? They're not, uh, I don't know, you know know who I'm talking about? If you don't, it's probably you, okay? (laughs) And so some of us are extremely on this side, some of us are on the other side, some of us can't decide which side we're on. When this one doesn't work out, in fact, for many religious leaders who have lived an entire life in moral conformity, when they realize it doesn't work out, they jump. And this is why you constantly see spiritual leaders falling into not moral conformity. (laughs) That oppression, this this by living, trying to get the father's things to earn the father's love. When you realize that you just can't do it, then you think this doesn't work. Maybe they were right all along. And when you get to this side, you're so judgmental of these unenlightened ones until you run into a problem, a massive problem that comes from self-discovery, and then you repent again, and then you're back. Yeah, except you're in the exact same problem because moral conformity and self-discovery, Jesus say, are both wrong. Both of these people. Are equally lost. And Jesus proposes a new way, and it's not a middle way, it's a radically different way altogether. And so, when we hear this parable, something should begin to stir in our hearts because it was like a kick to the gut to the first century years. The tax collectors were crying because they realized that they could come back to the Father. The Pharisees were upset because Jesus was telling them that they were wrong, and elder brothers hate to be told that they are wrong. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying that you are lost, and this is not the way that leads to life. Both of you say this is the way everyone should love. Both of you say this is what's going to make people happy. Moral conformists believe that keeping the law is going to be the solution. Self-discovery, go, do away with the law. Jesus says you're both wrong, you're both lost, and you are both very, very far from home. There are two ways to get the Father's stuff, but not the Father. They both lead to lostness, and they both alienate us from God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is neither morality or immorality, religion or irreligion. It is something else entirely. And what Jesus is saying through the parable, it's meant to elicit something in us as we hear about the feast. It's the smell of home. Whether you're an older brother Or a younger brother, you need to come home. Jesus wants us to compare and contrast the two brothers. But he also wants us to see ourselves in the story. And as the listeners were listening, something between the tears, between the anger, something deep inside. As the Holy Spirit began to work, a sense and a desire for home. Maybe tonight, as I'm busy speaking, the Lord is stirring a desire to come home. You know, C.S. Lewis used to call this desire the weight of glory. It's an intangible sense that this world is not everything and it's not enough and that I am missing something. Tonight, when you hear this parable, you're not, it's not on the other side. If you're a younger brother, it's not with the elder brothers. If you're an older brother, it's not with the younger brothers. The Lord is beckoning you home. And so I'm going to end with obviously answering that question, how do we come home? Because I believe tonight that's the Lord's heart for our community. The key to the kingdom, if we can understand what this is all about. And this is what changed the way that I thought about my journey with the Lord. It's when I think I actually became a Christian. First thing you want to do if you want to come home is that you need to feel tonight. You need to understand the initiating love of God. You see... With the younger brother, the father goes out and he kisses him. And with the, well, it's with the younger brother, with the elder brother, the father also goes out of the feast and he pleads with him. If the Lord is talking you to, to you tonight and you feel a sense of wanting to come home, you need to know that that's got nothing to do with you. If you can understand that the father is the one that initiates, that he is the one that has come out and come down to you, That he's the one busy knocking on the door. He's the one that is initiating. It changes everything. You see, particularly for the younger brother, he wants to be a slave. But because of the love of God, because of the initiation of this love, because it was because Christ loved us first, that God loved us first, not that we loved him. Before we could know him, before we could love him, he first loved us. And he took steps. He initiated love. The only reason we even know about God or know about his love is because he initiated it. If you realize that this is something that the Father Himself is initiated, you're one step closer to the truth. That's step number one. Learn the initiating love of God. Accept the initiating love of God. Understand whatever it is. Make it a pillar in your head that it is God that has done this, not us. Because that can then we can get to step number two, which is to learn to repent. And truly repent, you know, so throughout church history, we've sometimes taught very superficially about repentance. And so, what we often think about when we think about repenting is we think like younger brothers. The younger brother makes a list of all the terrible things that he's done wrong. He writes them down, and he repents from these sins. This is not a bad thing, but it's kind of the bare minimum. We do need to repent from our sins. The problem is that the elder brother had maybe sinned like once. And you don't even read about it. And the elder brother was equally lost. You see, if we're talking about true repentance, there's actually a level deeper. Yes, we need to repent from our sins. But uh, we also need to repent of our righteousness. The elder brother needed to repent of his self-righteousness. So only when we repent of our righteousness that we can truly transfer our trust into Jesus. You see, when you've been doing everything wrong and you turn turn from it, that is repentance. But when you've been doing everything right, that also doesn't get you into the feast. It keeps you out of the feast. And we need to repent for all the reasons why we've done anything right at all. And so true repentance is putting our trust in Jesus. And it's actually quite easy when you hit rock bottom to give up the terrible things that you're doing because it normally has a very real consequence. But elder brothers hold on to their goodness. And tonight, if you're struggling as an elder brother, what you need to do is actually repent of trying to control God in that way. It's the thing that is keeping you out of the feast. It is the greatest barrier to many in the church is their own good works. You see, it's not about the good works or the bad works. It's about coming into the feast. And repentance Is about putting your trust in Jesus. You've trusted him with the bad things, but can you trust him with the good things as well? And if we've done that, then the most important step, and this is really my conclusion, but I want to stop you a moment because this is the crux of the thing. This is what turned my heart. We need to be melted and moved by what it costs to bring us home. You see, the Lord wants us to come home so much that that's what He's been stirring in our hearts tonight, a desire to come home. And we need to understand that He has done it. And yes, we need to repent from our good and our bad. We need to put our trust in Him. But the thing that is going to hold us and keep us from being a younger brother or an elder brother is a heart that is melted and moved by what it costs to bring us home. Many of the greats have talked about this, but let's quickly in a moment, let's quickly look at this parable one more time. In the beginning, the Pharisees are angry that Jesus was with sinners. And Jesus tells three parables. I said we're going to go back there because it's quite important. This anger that the Pharisees have, Jesus tells the first parable, which is the parable of the lost sheep. In this parable, a shepherd leaves everything to go fetch the sheep, isn't it? We know this parable quite well. It's a story of lostness. And of a good shepherd that leaves everything to go and find the sheep. Leave the 99. High cost. The second parable he tells is the story of the lost coin. You get the same picture of someone so desperate, so, uh, so desperate for this coin. They turn the whole house upside down. They go searching for the coin. This is the second parable. And then we get to the parable that we told tonight. And this parable is actually a little bit different. You see it also has lostness. But there is a character missing, okay? With the other ones, they go searching for something. In the third, it doesn't. There's a bit of a digression. It's a third parable, and it's it's about lostness. But it's not about searching for someone that is lost. And Jesus actually does this quite deliberately. And we need to ask the question, why? Why is the parable of the two brothers so different from the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin? If you were in the first century and now is your big whopper, you, you would suddenly something would click. Anyone in the culture there would have known that the missing character was in fact the elder brother. Anyone in the culture would have known that the person who was meant to go search for the younger brother was in fact the elder brother. This story is so shocking in the end because the elder brother does not go search for the younger brother. In that culture, the elder brother was given the estate, but also the responsibility of keeping the family together. When mom and dad die, you are meant to keep the family close, to take care of people financially, emotionally. You are meant to display the love of the father to your younger brother. But in the story, there's a tragedy because the story, the elder brother is, of course, a Pharisee because he's talking to the Pharisees. The real tragedy for the younger brother is that he had a Pharisee for an older brother. The older brother was supposed to be concerned. Yet in this, um, in this parable, the only concern that the older brother had was for the expense, their cost, how much had been spent. You see, if you think about it, when the father split his estate... He would have had to cut up the inheritance and he would have had to give the younger brother his fair share of money. So everything that was left over, who did that belong to? It belonged to the elder brother. The estate was split and so the younger brother squandered everything he has and so when he returns, the estate, although it's still in the father's hands because the father hasn't died yet, everything left belongs to the elder brother. And a good elder brother would have spared no expense to go searching for his younger brother. What is truly alarming about the parable is that the older brother doesn't even know when the younger brother has returned, that he hasn't gone, that he has not spared any expense to go searching for the younger brother because that is his responsibility as an elder brother. This would have been quite well known in the culture. And so when the father brings the younger brother into the family, he can only do it at the expense of the elder brother. Now we're starting to see why the elder brother was so upset. You see, for the younger brother, the feast was free. It was grace. Didn't have to pay anything for it. But for the elder brother, the feast was costly. This fattened calf, he was thinking about the money. Because it was his money. And we as the human race, we need a true elder brother. See, God cannot bring us back into his family without a cost, to an elder brother, And in this story, the poor younger brother gets a Pharisee for an elder brother. But in our story, we do not. We get a true elder brother. See, there's one that has loved us, but also loved God and obeyed him. And he's completely earned everything. But at the end of his life, he doesn't get a robe. He gets stripped. At the end of his life, he doesn't get a fattened calf. He gets vinegar in a sponge. He doesn't get the ring of honor, he gets a crown of thorns. And he comes to us and he says, I did it all for you. And you couldn't be clothed unless I was stripped. You see, salvation is absolutely free for us, but it comes at an unbelievable cost for him. Jesus puts a bad elder brother in the story so that we will begin to long for a true elder brother. And we need an elder brother who won't just go into the next town for us. He will come from heaven to earth to look for us. And he is not concerned about the cost in his wallet. He's willing to pay the cost of his life. On the cross, Jesus paid a debt for us that we know deep down inside that we owe him everything and that we can only be brought home by this infinite expense. And so tonight I want to ask you, have you been moved and melted by what it took to bring us home? This is the heart of the kingdom. This is how someone actually enters the kingdom. This is what Jesus was saying. Have you been moved and melted by what it cost? Because no matter what you do, bad or good, you cannot pay the price. And to enter the kingdom requires a high price. And we have an older brother who has paid it. The degree to which we see that will change our entire approach to God. We won't be into self-discovery or moral conformity. We will truly become a Christian. And so this final wonderful picture, and this is what I carry for me, it's the beating heart of my faith, is the picture of a feast. It's why this parable is so precious to me, because when I think about, when I see myself swinging towards uh, these paths of self-discovery and moral conformity, I remember that neither one gets me into the feast. I have a picture of the feast clearly in my head, and I am moved by the cost of this feast that I did nothing for. It is freely given to me, but there was a high cost For this feast. In the olden times, in that time, but now there's a similarity. It's that when um, we celebrate, we eat. That's something that we have in common with the first century audience. A feast is where we go to be physically and emotionally recharged. It's a sense of well-being. It's a hint of what um, is to come when at the end of the end of days, our true older brother will open a door and we'll have a wonderful wedding feast. But this feast is a picture of what is to come. But Jesus says the kingdom is here and the kingdom is now. When Jesus sacrificed his life, he opened the door to the feast. And we can decide if we want to come home. Tonight, if you want to come home, you can come home because Jesus opened the door. God is someday going to make this whole world whole again. A picture I'm finishing with this scripture is in Isaiah 25. This is our future. Isaiah prophesied this feast, and this is what it looks like. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. All the elder brothers are concerned about the fact that we're drinking wine. Come into the feast, guys. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud, the shroud that enfolds all people. The younger brothers that are carrying their shame, they'll carry it no more in the feast. Elder brother, younger brother, you can come to the feast. He's calling you home. The sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. This is the hope of glory. This is what I carry in me. I am moved by the cost of this feast, but so moved, I am so amazed by it, so astounded by it, that I refuse to stay outside. I will not be a younger brother and work as a slave in my father's house when he has already slaughtered the fattened calf. Neither will I sit outside sulking just because it cost everything. I didn't have to pay. He did. And I will not be lost for the rest of my life. I will come to the feast. And so for those first people that heard that parable, some would have responded. It's our time to respond now. If in your heart you realize that you've been a younger brother, or an elder brother, you can pray along now, and it's just a response to the Lord's love. If you feel moved tonight, the Holy Spirit is stirring your heart, and you say, Lord, I want to leave behind my bad ways, and my good ways. I am sick and tired with the path of self-discovery, but I am equally sick and tired of the path of moral conformity. I just can't do it anymore. It's boring. It sucks. I want to come into the feast. He is appealing to us to come home. Come home, whether you are a younger or our older brother. And so let's pray in your heart. If you want to respond to the Lord, you can and say, Lord, I'm tired. I want to come into the feast. Lord, our hearts are moved by your word and by your spirit. And we are just amazed by what you've done. Thank you, Jesus. You are our true elder brother. And today we repent of our good works. We repent of our bad works. But we are so moved by what you've done, Lord, all we can do is respond. And so in your heart, you can just say, yes, Lord, I'm coming. I'm coming home. I'm done sulking outside the feast. I'm coming home. I'm done living my own way. I'm coming home. Are you melted and moved by what it costs to bring us home? I'm saying again for me, yes, Lord, I'm coming home. Lord, I pray that this picture of this feast would come a picture in our mind that we would have it as something before us and that it would hold us and help us from these two areas of lostness that you would keep us from the traps of being a younger brother or an older brother, that you would keep us in the feast that you have paid for. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an exciting journey we're on. We are looking at the king and his kingdom. And this is one of the most beautiful pictures of the kingdom. It is a feast. How do you get in? You've got to come in. The price is already paid. You can't earn your way in. You can't earn your way out. You've just got to come in. Hold that dear to your heart's. And I hope you have a great week. We're excited to continue talking about the Lord and His kingdom in the weeks to come. If you feel like you need prayer or want to work things out, there'll be a prayer team over here and a host team. Otherwise, Connect will be over there, and we'll see you next week.